You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. On today's episode, I speak with Shalin De Silva and Jake Katanian from Vincere Health. Shalin is a recovering banker who worked at Deloitte, BNP, and SMBC, primarily in mergers and acquisitions and leverage finance. During this time, he co-founded Global Clinic as a volunteer to deliver free cataract and cleft surgeries and primary eye and dental care around remote parts of Asia, which led him to quit banking and dedicate his career to healthcare. He holds a math, finance, and public health degree from London School of Economics, Cambridge, and Harvard. Jake, before his master's degree at Harvard, worked as a consultant in healthcare strategy and technology. He focused on innovative care delivery models and early value-based care initiatives for providers, payers, and state agencies. He's passionate about building teams and tech that enable thoughtful remote care models for vulnerable populations. They are co-founders of Vincere Health. They're building a smoking cessation company, which incorporates cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, cash rewards, a CO monitor, so you blow into it to show how much you've been smoking recently, got community baked in, access to a live counselor, and probably more that I've forgotten. I'm a proud investor. The company's raised $4.3 million with a recent $3 million seed announced led by AmpFam, over 20 employees. They've served already 1,600 patients and more coming. Amazing outcomes, which we talk about. Three-month quit rate is 35%. Sometimes with some groups, they do better. And they're seeing healthy births from smoking moms. Oh, so important and heartbreaking to hear about that. We discussed the transition from corporate world to being a founder bringing your authentic self to work, starting a family while being a founder, and building a health tech company. I, th I think you'll enjoy this, so please stay tuned. Welcome to Startups for Good, you two. Thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure to be here, Miles. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us, yeah. So let's dive right in. Why do you have to pay someone to do something that's good for them? I think the payment is just a gateway to get their attention. You know, we unveil a whole host of other benefits and tools and approaches just we just need to get their attention from the outset and kind of keep people coming back. That's the real key here. And once you have their attention, what do you do with it? I guess it's then it's on us to prove our value, get them from this extrinsic motivation that the incentive represents to seeing some intrinsic value in engaging with a clinician, a care provider, a human being that they build a human relationship with. That's what I think is core to creating lasting change. Jake, I don't know if you have any other comments to add to that. Yeah, no, I, I think you nailed it. I think, you know, you, you start by paying somebody and you develop a really strong relationship with them. In particular, like with some of the folks that we serve, I think that relationship is really important. So somewhere along the way, you have to turn the dial from extrinsic to, in, you know, intrinsic to make them really start to believe in themselves. And I think that's what we're, we're trying to accomplish here. And is there any risk that that extrinsic motivation will undermine or block the formation of an intrinsic motivation? I think people respond to different weights of interventions. 
Some may respond better to the extrinsic incentive. Some may respond better to the clinical care or the community support or just the ability to kind of measure their behavior and, and track their health biomarkers objectively and see the, the delta, see the progress over time. Our challenge is to do what it takes to like get people in the door and then present to them the right mix of all those parameters that we offer, those interventions that we offer and personalize it for everyone. So there's a lot of moving parts to your service. How did you come to the vision that includes all of them? Yeah, I think one of the things that that uh, makes us really special is putting all of the the pieces together, right? I think that's really difficult for companies uh, to do, in particular, like when they serve low income populations. I think you know we wanted to start with a really strong foundational base, right? We always say you know we start with the evidence base of cognitive behavioral therapy and and motivational interviewing, and there's really strong research out there for financial incentives, you know, there's this really exciting, you know, you know, behavioral econ and behavioral science that's been permeating healthcare and health tech. And I don't think, you know, anybody had really put them together in a really uh, comprehensive way and had like really strong sort of continuity of care across somebody's quit attempt. And I think it just made sense for us, you know, to sort of layer everything in together and do lots of experiments and uh, try to figure out kind of, you know, how to refine the product uh, specifically for the group that we want to reach. So I think it was a little a little ambitious, right, to try to put together all the pieces. But uh, I, I think it's the best product that we could have put together. I would add to that that you know at the, we have the humility to admit that we didn't know all those you know levers and moving parts would work in the way that they do work today. Like we had to learn by doing and just trying and listening and observing our participants and working with the kind of demographic that we were impassioned to support. And, and solve problems for. So yeah, like Jake said, we started with that evidence base and then we observed what the needs were and then added components piece by piece to build what we've built today, which we think is like the most effective, comprehensive, technologically advanced behavior change program for smoking cessation out there. And I think our patients and customers and employees and everyone involved would say the same thing. Now, you mentioned being impassioned to work with a particular population. How did you come to that population? I'd say we came to the same point from opposite ends of the globe, really. <laughs> For me, I had you know, grown up partly in Sri Lanka, partly in various parts of Asia and Australia to pretty lower to lower middle income immigrant parents and the idea of supporting the community and, and supporting people who are underserved and didn't have the privileges that we had. Like that was kind of ingrained in me, even though the kind of adolescent in me wanted to kind of pursue more material goals in my younger years. And I ended up down a, a career trajectory in banking and trying to get myself the shiny objects that I thought I needed when I was younger and I didn't have. Um, but throughout, I kind of felt like there was something missing and I tried to fill the gap founding a nonprofit that was delivering medical services to you know, underserved, lower-income communities and parts of remote parts of Asia. Did that for like five years and didn't quite solve that yearning to want to dedicate my day job and my full attention to helping people who weren't in that kind of bracket. But yeah, eventually had the courage to quit my banking job and then sign up for a master's in public health here in Boston at Harvard, focused a lot of my time during my years at school in Boston, you know, learning about all the kind of impact innovation, impact oriented innovation, health 
innovation, other people who are like-minded and entities in the area that were working on similar problems. And I think my path crossed with Jake, who comes at it from a more domestic perspective, working with Medicaid populations. And I'll let him describe his kind of journey to where we've intersected and, and held hands and gone together since the last three or four years. Yeah, I think we always like to joke that like when Shalen started, right, he was saying a lot of what he saw, uh, you know, in his experience and on the other side of the globe, I saw working in Medicaid when I was consulting before grad school. It's crazy to think, right, like Detroit and Cleveland and New York City, you know, we have the same access to care issues. We have the same, you know, equity gaps um, that are present you know, everywhere. And one of the big realizations I had, you know, as like a young professional kind of working in the, in the belly of the beast, working for state Medicaid departments and health plans and providers is just seeing how little comparatively, right, how little resources and time and effort and energy we spend in this space in low-income America. So that always, that always fired me up to want to be a part of something. And that was one of our earliest, you know, bonding moments when we sat down together at the iLab just having coffees or whatever, right? Just kind of walking through kind of what, you know, could we make something work together? And I think that was a really strong foundation for us because like Shalane said, right? Like he had, you know, been on the path. He's making tons of money as a banker and he's got a really luxurious life. And I have a lot of respect for somebody who said, wait a minute, like, you know, where else can we point the cannon? Where else can we be really impactful? So I think that's sort of like the bottom of the pyramid at, at, at Vincere Health. And officially today is our third birthday. So we are, it's been just such a, a a wonderful journey, the people that we've met and, and you know, what we've learned in the industry. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun too. And that's been great. Happy birthday to Vincere Health. <laughs> I appreciate that. Just learning how to walk. How did yeah. the two of you decide to work together? You mentioned sitting down and having coffee. What, what were the other steps you took? I mean, it was a very organic process. I don't think, you know, we set out to shake hands and say, let's, okay, let's, now that we've met, let's start a company together. I think we were both working on our own independent, kind of tangentially related passion projects or ideas. And the intersection at that time was me wanting to find out more about, I think it was COPD populations on Medicaid in the US healthcare. And, and Jake had a ton of knowledge working on a project at KPMG with, I think, New York State Medicaid. And he was very transparent and giving in his time and a knowledge and everything. And I think that's the kind of spirit that we've really built our company, but also seen the communities around us, you know, share and, and give each other, especially like Techstars, The Alchemist, Harvard Innovation Lab, that the kind of startup communities we're part of. It's all about just sitting down and not having any real ulterior motive or thinking what you're going to get in return as a transaction, but just being genuinely curious to share what you have and see someone else grow. I think that's the kind of starting point that we met under. And we had a number of conversations around that and, and saw that, you know, over time, we just worked really well together. And there was just an organic way of building on an idea piece by piece that eventually led to us incorporating a company and signing up for various pitch competitions and accelerators together and stuff. Yeah, I, I suppose it's like, it's a good point, dude. Like, we never sat down and said, okay, like we're going to build a company together. We just sort of explored, you know, problems that we cared about. And we talked about the brand and what was something that we could both get behind and something that we care deeply about. And we were just sort of like unearthing problems and puzzles to solve together. And it just kind of, it evolved, right? We, we, we built some tech. Uh, we had some really fun pilots <clears throat> with a local uh, union 
and actually with one of the grad schools at Harvard with some students that were using the software, giving us feedback. And I had never really built product like that, like built software in that way, sort of hands-on working with, you know, actual users of the tech. And I, I think we, we just couldn't get enough of it, right? It was just a lot of fun and it was much more interesting than, you know, what, at least what I had been doing for sure, you know, in my previous professional life. And we just kept, kept the snowball rolling. So I've certainly met, and I think we've had founders on this show who intentionally set out to build a team, to find a co-founder to start a business with. Would you say that you recommend against doing that? Or just in your case, it didn't happen that way? I mean, I had had a couple of false starts with tangentially related ideas where, you know, I tried to join a team to kind of crystallize an idea that I had through someone else who was able to kind of paint a picture of something similar. And I think I had always put my ego a second and just wanted to build something that was, that I thought was important. And those attempts just never worked out. But I think it doesn't mean it, it can't happen that way. You know, you might have like a a serendipitous encounter with someone who's willing, able, and available for participating in, in a journey that you you already have laid out in front of you. I think for the both of us, it was just good timing, the right place, right time. And yeah, it you know, we have a unique relationship, I think, in the startup world where I don't see any hierarchy between Jake and I. Like we are like a great team together. We make decisions better together rather than on our own, I think. And we've made it work because we've built up a way of trusting and communicating with each other and, and kind of sharing the burden of responsibility when it comes to certain things and being good at not overlapping and being efficient in how we pass out our time. So I think in, in venture, it's tempting to pattern match and look for similar success stories in the past that you can kind of reference what's happening today, which is part of the de-risking process, but it doesn't mean it's the only way. And I think we've proven in a lot of ways, both in terms of the, the problems that we're trying to solve for, who we're, who we're solving those problems for and how we go about it and the way that we build the company and, and you know, lead the team together. I think these are all kind of unique things that feel natural to us. And I think if you believe in something strongly enough, like it's it doesn't matter whether you're following a pattern or not. I think as long as you're humble enough to recognize what the limitations are, especially as first-time founders, I know there's a lot of risk and uncertainty and a lot of credibility to be earned by us, and we don't take that lightly. We are always the first to say we don't know, and we will reach out to our commu community of mentors and advisors and really try and listen hard and you know, take a good hard look at ourselves and seeing what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong and, and try and improve. I think being unselfish and humble is kind of the key to building something that you believe in. And I think if you kind of tick those boxes, you're kind of halfway there. And being non-hierarchical, how do you make decisions? Do you both have to agree on the big things? What would you say, Jake? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really good question. I mean, you like to think that we came in with like a specific framework and, you know, how to think about you know, decisions that we make three, six, 12 months into the future. But I think we both, I, I, I think we both have a pretty good gut. And I think that if something feels wrong, we'll cross, you know, cross it <clears throat> with the other person and make sure that everybody's on board in the hiring process. If I like someone and Shalen doesn't or vice versa, it's going to be very difficult to bring that person into the fold. 
I think that we've taken on so much as a company. There's definitely overlap, but it's it's a supportive overlap, right? I mean, people have to stay, you know, day to day and not so much in their lane, but you know, the thing that they're good at and and, and the way that they add the most value to the company. And also we just spend a lot of time together, like uh, for better or worse, that you know, I've probably spent more time with Shalen than my whole family combined in the, the last three years. But you know, when you when you do that and you have that type of relationship, you end up running pretty much everything by each other. So it, it's, it's felt pretty good, pretty good so far. I don't know if you'd have anything to add, dude. Yeah. I mean, I definitely spend more time with Jake than my soon to be wife <laughs> and <laughs> soon to be son, I guess. So I think this is something I, that that's on my mind. How do I kind of do them justice and, you know, also make sure I'm spending that that amount of time and dedication to, to Jake and the business and everything. So you brought up this point of starting a family. And we recently had an entrepreneur on the podcast who was visibly, visibly pregnant while fundraising in person. And she told a story of how it affected how investors decided to work with her. You've now been sharing your starting a family. Has that come up in your investor conversation? I mean, I think I'm pretty transparent about everything. I mean, we have, I think this is part of who we are for better or worse. Like we wear our hearts on our sleeve and we are human in every way possible and try and be you know, honest about everything going on in our personal and professional lives. Because to us, this is like our professional life is personal. Like we made a choice to leave behind the kind of stale structures and hierarchies of the corporate world to apply ourselves in a more wholesome, wholehearted way towards our everyday work. And I think with that comes more productivity and more innovative things and creative things that are born into the world. And with that comes the bleeding of the professional and personal life and being able to own that and accept that being human means being engaged with your your life's work, but also knowing what's important, which is you know, your family and relationships and you know growing that side of your yourself and i think that only makes you a a, a more well-rounded leader creator inventor you know it, it can only help the business so i think i hope people understand that and investors appreciate that like it's not a hindrance it's a it's a it's a uh, it's an asset and i hope that the company becomes a, a, a leader in this field of allowing our employees to have a full, wholesome, personal life that is intertwined with their professional life. And you know, whether it's moms having to take maternity leave or dads having to take paternity leave and experiencing all aspects of, of what it means to be human in a, in a way that's fully supported by the company and the business, because it only makes for stronger, more committed, more, more valuable employees with a wider perspective on life. Well, as an investor, I, I'm excited to hear you talking about all this openly. I'm curious, what other decisions have you made to tangibly make the company different for employees to follow through on this intention? We talked about this a lot over the course of the pandemic, right? Like we were in a scenario, obviously nobody's ever been in before. You're trying to scale teams remotely. You're trying to scale the business. And I think we were really afraid that sort of like the fabric that we wanted to create wouldn't be as as powerful or profound, right? And I, I mean, to be honest, it's something we struggled with as a company, right? I mean, you try to keep people together on happy hours and, you know, through the course of the pandemic and, you know, have specific time dedicated, you know, during the week and each month 
to listening to how employees are doing. One fun thing, you know, as we've been sort of, you know, gosh, knock on wood, ramping down the pandemic stuff is doing more stuff in person uh, in Boston, which has been a lot of fun. We've got a company retreat coming up in the White Mountains uh, in about a month, which is going to be a lot of fun. And I think, you know, when you're scaling teams remotely, you have to be way more intention, you know, way more kind of pointed in your intention to setting aside time to build relationships as people together. Because one thing that I think we got really lucky, maybe it's on purpose, I'm not really sure, but I think one thing we got really lucky with is everybody on the team has a similar just attitude and wants to collaborate and wants to problem solve, like top down, like, you know, customer success, you know, the very front door of the business all the way to the tech team. I think, you know, people like spending time together because, because we're nerds and, and we want to solve this problem together. And we have to be really intentional about the way that we continue to do that. Uh, it's just such a, I think, important thing for us. I, you know, I think, yeah, we're definitely worried in the pandemic that maybe it was a little bit choppy and we could have done a better job, but yeah, it's, it's yeah a, a big priority of ours. Also, I'd say one of the things that I disliked about corporate life back in the day was there was pressure to kind of put this skin on that was not your authentic self to come through the doors of your professional environment. You know, you had to become someone else, have a mask on and have this persona that wasn't natural. I think I'm really resistant to that. I feel like that takes up a lot of energy and effort for no good reason and you know i am happy so far at the scale that we're at which is you know roughly 20 plus now full-time and part-time employees um everyone i hope feels like they can truly not just in a hand wavy way like truly feel like they can bring their authentic self to work because we're very kind of non-judgmental empathetic and understanding of people's various backgrounds and various experiences and various kind of cultural ex experiences and encouraging that diversity of thought more than anything else like is and being able to kind of be sincere in, in everything that they do with their work life and how they show up i think that's really important to us and also just being super transparent with what what we're doing where we're headed and, and why we are doing all the things that we're doing I, we, we've taken pains especially recently to really crystallize how we're communicating company strategy and you know, our objectives, whether it's next quarter or in a year from now or three years from now, enabling everyone in the company to kind of trace all the things that they're asked of and that they need to achieve, how it traces back to like the company direction. So there's just like a lot of clarity in communication as to why you have to do like the few shitty tasks that are on your plate <laughs> like what the purpose of it is and how it fits into the bigger picture. I think trusting people with that information and that transparency kind of elicits a lot of comfort and understanding and commitment, which I think is the basis for you know, getting the most out of people and, and having just a really great working environment. Now you talked about nerding out about the problem of smoking. I'd like to give you an opportunity to nerd out a little bit here. Is it really a big problem? Yes, it's a massive problem. <laughs> I think that in America, particularly VCs for some reason, right? People want to say, well, the market's declining. It's not a big problem anymore. You know, at a population level, maybe we smoke at 15 or 18%. But in the Medicaid space, you know, for the last 20 years, we've smoked around 30% prevalence. And I think that this is uh, an affliction that, you know, primarily uh, or disproportionately 
affects people in low-income and blue-collar America. And for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure. I think people don't tend to start companies for that demographic. Obviously, globally, we don't have to make the argument that this is a massive problem. And you know, as a company that started in smoking cessation, obviously, our aspirations are to get to get everywhere, right? We want to get outside of uh, the United States. Huge need for it elsewhere. Domestically, we have to be a little more clever about how we articulate the problem, meaning if we focus on specific populations that we know, you know, smoking is just absolutely detrimental for, detrimental for pregnant moms, for example, right? 50% of babies in America are born on Medicaid. And that means that Medicaid really kind of, you know, shoulders the burden of that cost, um, not just financially, but, you know, for the moms that are hitting birth weights under, you know, five and a half pounds. So, you know, clinically low birth weights, this is a super expensive problem. For the babies, obviously, because their IQs are lower, you know, in the first, you know, when you check the first three, five, 18 years of life, but also for the payers, right? Like preterm birth, uh, NICU admissions, length of stays, this is a very expensive problem. And I think it's the onus is on us to articulate that, to carve out, you know, really smart uh, business models so that we can maximize the value we generate when we help achieve, you know, healthy births in that population. So that's one big one. Obviously, there are other specific priority populations with specific disease states. So COPD, for example, CHF, smoking exacerbates all of these problems. So if you look at it from a pure population level, you may have somebody outside of the space say, well, this probably isn't a big deal anymore. It's not the, not the 1950s. But if you look a little bit deeper, there's huge implications, right? Societal implications, financial implications, like I said, right, for, for babies being born into this world. So I think we still see it as as a big enough company to be funded in a venture scale way. Yeah, I don't know if you'd, you'd add anything to that. Yeah, I mean, that that's exactly right. And I'd just add that smoking is kind of the gateway into getting the attention of a high utilizer population that insurance companies spend millions and millions of dollars trying to get in front of and get their attention, but also get in front of the problems that th these members have or these constituents have in the case of you know, government funds that are available to pay for some of these these problems. So for us, starting with something pointed and achievable, which is really kind of moving the needle on smoking cessation and patient engagement activation for this you know, challenging demographic, it just opens up the possibilities to solve a lot of other problems that the, the, the state or commercial payers might have uh, in addressing this population. You said that smoking is more prevalent among a lower income population. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. It's a really, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. Uh, folks that are educated at a high school level or less, as you go down sort of the socioeconomic ladder, individuals just tend to smoke at higher rates. It's just been an affliction, you know, of that population for a long time. And it's also, I think, it's an access to care issue um, on top of an educational issue. And a lot of the incentives for primary care docs across the country is to actually not provide this type of care. It's reimbursed at such a low clip that primary care physicians can't really justify doing the counseling in clinic. So a lot of times it gets passed off or it doesn't get prioritized. So folks can go a really long time without even considering a quit attempt. So I think that the onus is on Vincere Health to find folks that drop through the net and to partner with some of the incumbents in the space uh, that are the biggest providers of smoking cessation. Uh, there's a lot of state infrastructure available to folks that 
honestly don't even know that it exists. So I think pairing smokers up with the resources that exist is also something that we've been getting a little bit better at as we've been uh, been evolving for sure. Also, I mean, these populations, like low income populations, minority populations have just been easy targets for the tobacco industry. And, you know, there's billions of dollars in marketing spend used to target specific populations very strategically by highly paid white collar professionals who's who are accountable to their shareholders to make lots of money. You know, that's the truth of it. And in the absence of the buffers of education and primary care, and with the pressures that are part and parcel of being party to that socioeconomic bracket, you know, we are working multiple jobs or unable to work because of some kind of disability or other kind of constraints in your life. And you're under so much emotional and psychological pressure once you get targeted for the marketing and you get hooked. That's it. Like you just, no one's out there trying to unhook you and get you back on track. And that's what we're aiming to do. And how are you doing on that mission? I think pretty damn well for the three years that we've been around, you know, like we, we've found our way into some of the, the largest and most invisible pockets of funding, like at the government level, it's, it's really the, a lot of state dollars that exist to solve this problem at the end of the day. The, the health plans may play a role in it through sort of MCOs and other kind of funding mechanisms, but ultimately the largest amount of funding exists uh, at, at state or federal level government funds to pay for this. And we've partnered up with some of the biggest gatekeepers to some of those dollars through specialist provider groups and uh, MCOs and uh, also some very progressive health systems that see the value in, in applying the best possible solution to try solve this problem for their populations. and. Yeah, I think we've earned a lot of trust in the industry just by being humble and listening and being patient and being collaborative and, and trying to be a complement to some of the good work that's already been done at that level that may not be super visible you know, or you know, front and center of you know, tech scene marketing uh, exploits, for example. I'm feeling a little sentimental now that it's... Uh you know, that we incorporated three years ago today, but it's really incredible when you look back on it, right? Like, you know, in that time, we've stood up a totally virtual care clinic. We've been billing fee-for-service at, you know, I think 43 different health insurance companies in five states. We've been doing that successfully in Medicaid. That's been a blast. I think contracting with uh, managed care this early on is a testament to, you know, how fast we've found the folks that need help, treated them, and really executed on some excellent clinical outcomes. And, that's just, you know, it feels like when you're in it, you know, day to day, it feels like you're always uphill and, you know, you, you don't really stop to, to celebrate or stop to, I was going to say, you know, celebrate small wins, but celebrate any wins because you just kind of always feel like you're underwater, but it's nice to sit for a second and think about all we've accomplished in those few years. And, and it's always exciting to think about, you know, with what we've got in the pipeline and where we want to go and, you know, new disease states, we're thinking about how we can, can, you know, continue to expand the impact and use the tech that we've built you know, in new, new, new and exciting ways. Can you say more about those outcomes? Yeah, for sure. Just, just high level, some of the stuff that we've been able to accomplish in the last few years. For those of you that don't know, we use a carbon monoxide monitor. Uh, it's Bluetooth connected and everybody in our, in our population does breath tests. We try to get them to do a couple breath tests per day. And that monitor will get a carbon monoxide reading anywhere from you know, zero, which is, you know, you're not smoking at all to maybe around 50 or 60 parts per million. And if you're, if you're smoking two and a half to three packs a day, you're kind of way up there on the scale. So we use that device to objectively verify how folks are doing in our program. So the typical kind of, you know, 
benchmarks for smoking cessation or what are your quit rates at three and six months, you can go a little further out than that. But our three-month quit rate, uh, objectively verified, is right around 35%. And the six-month quit rate, objectively verified, is right around 32%. And that's at sort of the population level. We do have some really awesome pilots with self-insured employers where our quit rate got up to like 58%, which is really, really incredible. And it's, it's fun to see because we literally can't lie to, lie to you, right? Like we're doing facial recognition on, on the patients that consent to it. So we know that they're doing their tests. We know that we're objectively verifying sort of this positive behavior change in their life. And I know I mentioned pregnant moms earlier, but that's been such a huge part of our patient population because one of our strategic partners you know, does low-income smoking cessation for pregnant moms in 22 or 23 states, and we've been providing software to them. So I think a third of our patient population has been pregnant moms, and we've seen a little over 85% healthy births for the mom that we treat, which has been really, really great. And we're tracking some more sort of longitudinal data, you know, as we continue to treat more moms and, and you know, just generally for all of our population. But I, I suppose those are the big outcomes that we have so far. Obviously, we we continue to track as we go along. Wow, I'm really impressed to hear the quit rate being so similar between three and six months. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like to your question at the beginning, Miles, right? It's like, is paying somebody actually a good idea? Is that actually going to beget healthy behavior change in somebody's life? And I think we all agree that it doesn't on its own, but you have to put together a strong, uh, we call them campaigns, strong, quick campaign. You have to build a strong relationship uh, with the human right? It's very hard to do some of this stuff by chatbot, which I think is a, a temptation for a lot of folks that enter the health tech space. And you just got to you know, build that relationship with them. And when you uh, graduate them from the program, we literally call them graduates of the Vincere Health Program. Are you still giving them access to educational materials and uh, you know, the community feature, which everybody has really loved? And obviously, everybody gets to keep their device. So they, lots of folks will quit and they'll just keep doing their tests because they like seeing the confetti fall when they do the breath test on the app. So I think, you know, once you have their, uh, you know, their attention with the financial incentive, you don't want to waste it. And can you say something about scale in terms of number of patients, uh, dollars raised, anything like that? Yeah, to date, we've seen about 16, 1700 patients come through our doors and we've raised just over $4.3 million. We closed out a $3 million seed round last year, backed by some amazing investors. AmFam led the round with uh, participation from Flare Capital and 630 Ventures, Equity League, as well as Trevor Fetter, who used to be CEO of Tenet Healthcare and now a Harvard Business School professor. We've had some really great support from people who've just taken a punt on us. You know, we had to earn the credibility quickly because we were pretty much nobodies four years ago. And we're really, really grateful to so many generous people out there from our investors to advisors to customers and employees who've had to really take a huge punt on two dudes who just kind of wanted to build something that mattered. I don't take that for granted, for sure. That's a beautiful expression of gratitude. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think we should wrap up here. Is there any place you'd like people to follow up online? Yeah, you can find us at our website, www.vincere.health. We're active on LinkedIn and Facebook and all those channels work. Always happy to connect with people who are interested for whatever reason. You know, we're very much a community-driven organization, so always happy to chat. Yeah, if somebody, if somebody fills out the link on the website, it'll come directly to our email boxes. So we'll, we'll definitely 
definitely see it. But yeah, feel free to reach out on LinkedIn. Pretty active there. But also just, you know, people in the space, investors, policy wonks, uh, you know, people that kind of like health tech. Getting to know more people in the space is a lot of, uh, has been a lot of fun. So I would just encourage people to reach out for, for whatever reason. Thank you both for coming on, showing up with your authentic selves, being willing to talk about a variety of subjects, and for that kind offer to connect with our listeners. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Miles. Appreciate you having us on. All right. Take care. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.